Welcome back to NC Realtors Redefined, the NC Realtors podcast. On this episode, NC Realtors Director of Field Advocacy, Troy Bachman, talks with author and Strongtown's founder, Chuck Marone, about how homeowners can find ways to make their city stronger and more financially resilient. But first... I'm Seth Palmer, Director of Regulatory Affairs and External Communications at NC Realtors. While this year's NC Realtors legislative meetings looked and felt different, they were no less vital to our association's advocacy efforts. Taking what usually is crammed into three action-packed days in Raleigh and stretching it out into six days of virtual committee meetings and sessions allowed for greater engagement. More people from more areas across the state were able to participate and provide their input to the important activities in our association's life. We were also ecstatic to be joined by a great group of special guests from EDPNC's CEO, Christopher Chung, at the Economic Development Committee, to USDA State Director Robert Hosford at the Realtors Commercial Alliance meeting. We certainly had outstanding speakers. Oh yeah, we also convened the largest gathering of NC Realtor legislators ever as a part of our second capital conversation, and were joined by NAR's Chief Lobbyist and Director of Federal Housing Policy during our legislative forum. So all in all, one of our biggest lineups ever. We didn't forget about all of the important NC Realtors committee meetings either. We were able to conduct these through Zoom meetings and webinars to allow for the engagement of the committee members and attendees alike. We were also able to conduct the first ever virtual meeting of the association's board of directors. And no, we didn't forget about a legislative day either. Like we have with so many other parts of our advocacy efforts recently, we didn't let things stall out. We instead hit the gas. To match the opportunity of the moment, we didn't do one meeting, we did many. Branded as the 2020 General Assembly gatherings, these virtual engagements were made possible through a partnership with local associations and state political coordinators. We have already held almost 50 individual meetings and we aren't done yet. Like any other year, these meetings are grounded in our annual talking points. This year's talking points focus on expressing the association's perspective on ways to continue business and plan for our future. Though we wish that we didn't have to conduct this year's meetings through virtual means, we were so happy to have had such a successful event. Stay informed, stay engaged, and watch for more updates from our ongoing advocacy efforts in upcoming NC Realtors communications. Hello there, I'm Troy Bachman with the North Carolina Homeowners Alliance, and this is Chuck Marone from Strong Towns, and we're here today to talk about what exactly Strong Towns does um, and some tips for homeowners uh, that are interested in investing in their communities. So Chuck, tell us a little bit about your organization um, and, and maybe talk about what a Strong Town looks like. Sure. Uh, we're in 501c3 advocacy group. We're trying to help cities become financially strong and resilient. We deal with media. Uh, this whole thing started as me writing a blog about my experiences as an engineer and a planner. And so what we're, we're trying to do is help places see the financial impacts of our development pattern. 
a lot of the way we build today is designed to give cities, communities of, of people, a financial sugar high in exchange for enormous long-term liabilities. And a lot of the reasons why we struggle as cities to make budgets, to keep taxes down, uh, to effectively provide service is because we are overcommitted. We're kind of strung out and these liabilities that we took on decades ago are now coming due and we don't have the tax base to, to maintain them. The second part of your question was? Tell us what the modern strong oh, town looks like. Oh, the modern I feel like the modern strong town is, is an evolving place. Mm -hmm. um, really, the, the big kind of core difference between a modern uh, development pattern and a strong town's development pattern is the ability to evolve and adapt. Um, every living being uh, that has ever existed that has thrived and survived has had the capacity to adapt and evolve and change. We build cities today as if they're static. We build things all at once to a finished state and then they are done. We don't allow them to adapt, to change, to respond to stress, to respond to opportunity. And because of that, we've essentially made them dead places. Um, we need to get life back into our cities again, allow them to adapt, to change and evolve. Um, they'll all look different, you know, so there isn't really like one, like here's what a strong towns looks like. Um, but it would, it, would, it would look like a place that has the ability to evolve. So what I'm hearing is a place that responds to local needs and, and the desires of the local community. So there's no way to say, this is the solution that fits every single place. You've got to really listen to the public and you've got to listen to your, your community partners. I definitely, agree. I definitely agree with the second half of that. Mm -hmm. um, the first half, I would want to put a little bit of modifier on it because really what you want is not a, a, a community vision in place. Um, like, you know, we agree 50% plus one that we should do this and therefore it reflects our needs. What you really want is an ecosystem mm -hmm. where at the very block level, buildings with people inhabiting them and their hopes and dreams about the future, being able to adapt and evolve and change. Mm -hmm. um, I'll give you probably the most controversial way to think of this in practical sense. If you have a neighborhood of single family homes, that neighborhood should be able to evolve to be a neighborhood of duplexes. Um, a lot of people freak out about that because yeah. they're like, I don't want to <laughs> live in a neighborhood of duplexes. But if you freeze a neighborhood of single family homes, um, what you've done is you've artificially stagnated it. And you have, in a sense, it, it might take a decade, it might take three decades, it might take five decades. You have ensured that it will enter into decline. You've also ensured that it is financially an insolvent investment for the community. And so our neighborhoods all need to be able to adapt, evolve, change. The people living in our homes, the people owning our business buildings need to be able to adapt and evolve. And that will come together and have the community evolve. I think oftentimes we try to do it the other way. Yeah. It's like, here's our community vision for this neighborhood. And it kind of winds up to be like a watered down version of what we can all mm -hmm. agree on. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm suggesting is that we are a collection of individual visions. And we need to allow a little bit more flexibility on people realizing their own independent dreams and, and hopes for the future. And that will build into a, a stronger whole. That is very different than what we see and yes. hear in, in a lot of city planning and a lot of community planning. Um, so on that topic, talk to me about 
you know, what are the three myths in city growth then if, if we should be evolving? How are we not necessarily doing that? How are we planning in an inefficient way? Talk to me just a little bit about that. I think if we had to boil down to three myths, I, I, the first one that comes to my mind is this idea that if you're not growing, you're dying. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe not a myth, but a short-term uh, view of things is what brings us to that. Um, certainly, the cities that are growing um, look more prosperous. Um, the cities that have had robust growth are, are the ones where things are shiny and new and they look good. The cities that have gone a long time without growing are the ones that are struggling. And you can say, well, if you're not growing, you're dying. That's very true. But we can look at businesses as well in the private sector and we can say, well, that business is growing very, very fast, but they're losing money on everything that they do. Um, you know, that's, that, that business has been able to add like a whole bunch of new customers, but they've taken on four times that amount of debt. In a market sense, we can look at that and say, that's not a viable way to grow your business. And even though it looks like it's doing well, it's not. And, the, you know, a, a publicly traded stock will be punished for behavior like that. Right. Cities do that all the time, like continuously take on enormous long-term liabilities, lots of debt, make lots of promises they can't keep in order to grow because growth tends to be the thing we obsess about. Mm-hmm. I, I think another myth is that um, we tend to look at neighborhoods that are uh, poor as being bad investments and neighborhoods where wealthy people live as being good investments. And if you look at it in an aggregate, and you can think of this as a commercial standpoint too, we look at like the Walmart as like the good investment and the little small town, you know, downtown hardware shop as like a, a lesser investment. Um, the reality is, is reverse of that. That little downtown hardware store might not pay a lot in taxes compared to Walmart, but it only takes up like 25 feet. I mean, you only have to provide 25 feet of sidewalk mm-hmm. for it. 25 feet of pipe and road um, is a really like productive use of your money. If you go out to the Walmart, yeah, they pay a lot of taxes, but they got a mile and a half of pipe mm-hmm. that you got to maintain. They got a mile and a half of road you've got to take care of. There's a huge amount of cost, public outlay right. involved in maintaining that. And so when we just look at like the top line, Walmart, big, lots of taxes, small little hardware store, tiny, less taxes. You're not asking a sophisticated enough question to actually get to whether something is a good investment or not. I think the third myth goes to the neighborhoods. Neighborhoods are that way too. Some of the most financially productive neighborhoods in any city are also occupied by the poorest people. Um, And it's this dichotomy because we think of like the rich subdivision out on the edge, the gated community with the huge houses and the big lawns. Yeah, there's a reason why the king used to live in a big palatial palace with big lawns and gardens and all this stuff. It's because everybody else was paying his way. Um, It's kind of the same thing here too. Uh, A lot of times when we will go out and model, the poorest neighborhoods are actually subsidizing the wealthiest neighborhoods. And it's a hard thing for us to get our minds around, but the math actually works out that way. Can you talk to us about the math? Tell me, tell me what you mean by that. Well, when we, I don't think we run cities like a business. Mm-hmm. I, I know a lot of politicians will run for office and they'll say, we're going to run a city like a business. Cities are not businesses. They're just fundamentally not. Um, yet, we can use business principles to understand what is going on in a city. So, for example, when you do that new subdivision, 
uh, you bring in 40 new homes and you look and they say, well, that's 40 new homes that are part of our tax base. We can do the math on that and say, here's how much revenue that will create for us today, next year, the year after. And we can project that out in the future with pretty good confidence knowing what we've got. A business, though, would also look at the liability. Mm -hmm. And when you get those 40 new homes, you also get a mile of new street. You get a mile of new pipe. You get a new park you have to maintain. Your fire department has to get a new pumper truck because, you know, that's uh, out there further. They've crossed the threshold. You need to uh, increase your water tower capacity. There are all these, like, added costs that go with that. A business would account for those. And when you sit down and you do the math like a business, you start to account for all these costs. What you find is that the further we get out from the core of the community, the more spread out our development pattern becomes, the more distance between different things that we would do, the more unutilized space we have, uh, the lower our return on investment goes. And in fact, it goes negative very, very quickly, where we are, yes, bringing in cash and revenue, but the long-term outlays are making us bankrupt. And th this is the challenge that cities have today because we don't do the math. Right. Public accounting is done different than private accounting. Public accounting has an emphasis on growth and transactions, where private accounting is more holistic and actually looks at the accrued liabilities. Cities need to change their accounting practices mm -hmm to actually account for these long-term promises they're making. Yeah, that is very interesting. Um, so we as the Homeowners Alliance are doing work to advocate for homeowners mm -hmm. and trying to educate homeowners about what they can do to invest in their communities and how they can get involved. So what would you say is the most effective way for homeowners to learn about strong towns and to apply these principles. Um, how, can, how can a homeowner really get involved here? Mm -hmm. I, th I think there's two easy answers to that. The first one is w everything that we do is designed to get a message out. And so you can just go to our website, strongtowns.org. We're publishing two, three articles a day. We're a, a media site, just like your local newspaper is a media site. So we're sharing stuff all the time about this. We put it in nice, shareable formats. It's all Creative Commons licensed, so you can use it and put it in your own newsletter. Send it to your friend, email it. We're on all the social media platforms. If you're looking for Strong Downs, you won't miss us. And you will get lots of stuff that will help you understand what's going on, be able to communicate it with others. Um, but I, I think the, the more urgent thing even beyond like plugging into the conversation. If, if I were to advocate for homeowners in a community, the, the most urgent thing I would say is you have to meet your neighbors. You have to get to know the people around you. Um, there's, a, the, the, there's, there's a great book called In the Neighborhood um, where he talks about the idea of, for, for, this is a, written by a Christian author, um, you know, who is my neighbor, Jesus says. And, you know, he struggled as a, as a pastor, as a minister, to say, well, I, I know the people in my church and I know the people in my friend group and my peer group, but I don't actually know the person who lives across the street from me, or who lives right next door to me. I know them superficially, but I don't really know them. And literally, they are my neighbor. Um, what we find is that the places that have positioned themselves the best to respond to both the stresses and the opportunities that are presented in our economy today, in our cities today, 
are the places where we have strong neighborhood groups. And not groups that have been kind of artificially created, but groups where people actually know each other, respect each other, generally like each other, you know, but that's not a prerequisite. <laughs> but at least like have gotten, have done the effort to know one another. Our development pattern today is so isolating. In fact, isolation is one of the features that we often sell, along with bizarrely community. We sell community and isolation as kind of a joint product. Um, we you tend can have to, your house, but you've got lots, lots of trees to protect, protect exactly, you from your neighbor. Exactly. Well, and you know, there's a great park here and there's people out walking around, but not scary people or not people where you want to walk around. And there's plenty of, you know, people in life, but not too much parking. And, you know, there's, there's this, we, we, we sell this very weird product where, you know, part of the American dream is both community and isolation from community. The reality is that we tend to default to the isolation and we are social species. Uh, humans are designed to live in contact with other humans. The way we collaborate and do great things um, is by working together. Um, and the way we get discounted and run over and not have our needs adequately addressed is to be isolated from others. So the places that I see doing the most effective work for Strong Towns advocacy at the local level are places where people have taken the time to get to know their neighbors. Awesome. Well, Chuck, I want to thank you very much for your time today. If you want to know more about the Strong Towns organization, you can go to strongtowns.org. Do you have feedback on a story or a topic that you'd like to hear covered on this podcast? Then give the NC Realtors Redefine a call at 336-550-4437. When leaving your voicemail, be sure to tell us your name and where you're from. Your comments may be used on a future episode of NC Realtors Redefined. Be sure to catch up on every episode of NC Realtors Redefined by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or SoundCloud. <laughs>